dive deep into the realm of large language models, prompt engineering, and best practices. With over 25 years of combined AI and product engineering experience, here are your hosts, Bradley Arsenault and Justin Macarin. Hello, Brad. Hey, Justin. So, Brad, I'm working on, on implementing this, this document-type RAG system where, you know, a large language model can read document content, text, and yep. basically generate either an answer or a summary based off of a query or a keyword. And sometimes, you know, I'm not too sure, do we put all of that document's text into that LLM or do we use a more bespoke curated approach and really select the most relevant components? Have, have you ever touched on that a bit? There, there's so many arbitrary decisions, right? Like uh, I, I could narrow it down or I, I could just do summaries of each page and put that in or, you know, the, 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 the number of possible designs is quite endless. And, and as, as, you know, AI engineers, we're trying to sort out which of these designs is actually better and, and which of them are worse. You know, I, I've certainly struggled to, to come up with this myself on several occasions. And, and I guess it's, it's not an easy decision all the time. And, oh. and today we are lucky enough to have Dennis over here from VoiceFlow, um, based out of Toronto and Dennis, first of all, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So. We talked a little bit about this um, problem about what do we give the LLM? Do we give an entire document? Do we give, you know, little segments of it? I'll, I'll leave it up to you to kind of maybe share a little bit more about your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. So I, th I think RAG has been the traditional approach or traditional as in the past few years to, to the problem of having a small context window and large language models. So up until even like two years ago, the standard context length was like 512 tokens, maybe a little bit more for longer models, 1024. Now, now we, we have the opportunity to have 200K context windows with models like Claude, but right was traditionally that, that approach. Um, but that's not a, a magic solution to dump everything into your large language model. One, it's really expensive, but two, most of the models still struggle with retrieving specific pieces of information. So selectively figuring out what kind of information you want to include in that model has been a important uh, debate. Uh, so typically companies started implementing a rag based solution that kind of took off after chat GPT. I still remember people were calling it the, the OP stack sort of on, on the viral, um, implementation internet, uh, open AI plus pinecone. That was kind of the, the original engine that took off, um, last year uh, or early two years ago. So that's, that, that was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, but now we're getting into sort of a mix of different industries coming together. So ChatGPT, people were first exposed to that, but now people are learning more about uh, information retrieval and all that work that has been done on search engines and such for the, the past, call it 20 years. Um, so it's interesting because people typically say, okay, let's retrieve some uh, relevant information using an embedding system to, to do some kind of similarity score. Uh, but it gets challenging because a lot of companies, they use something like a more traditional search engine. 
So they might use a keyword search. They might use something like Elasticsearch. And replacing that with a, sort of a new vector DB is, is challenging. Uh, an enterprise doing any kind of migration, nobody's going to get approval for that unless there's there's clear business value. So uh, the solution that, that comes to mind for that is what if you could take those results and augment them? And that's kind of where the concept of re-ranking and, and rank comes in, uh, both from a legacy sort of perspective, but also from taking the benefits of multiple models. So you could have a re-ranker that specializes in extracting certain information where your more standard um, embedding model for, for finding the initial similarity is different. So it's a pretty interesting topic of figuring out what to actually put in your large language model, but also we're starting to see almost these re-ranking techniques be much more abstract um, within large language model techniques themselves. So very interesting topic. Um, I guess we, we can kick it off from there. So, so, you know, you mentioned this rag based, um, feature with potentially multiple documents. If, if we just focus on maybe one document, let's, let's, let's make believe we're trying to build a rag based, you know, system for one PDF, for example, a 100 page PDF, you say, Hey, you know, these, these context windows can take up to 200,000 tokens. And I tell you, why wouldn't I be able to just stop that entire PDF in that context window and then just ask the question at the end, what's, what's stopping me from doing that? Is it quality? Is it cost? Is it a combination of like, why, why not? It works. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's a combination of both. Uh, there's a funny, uh, report. So th there's been some scoring that's, that goes on for long context windows. Uh, there's a few people who are running these evaluations. I think they call it like a needle in a haystack test where they bury some important detail at some point in a, in a PDF or a file and see how well that uh, model responds. And when they originally did that test on Claude 2, it had horrible accuracy. I think it was like something like 20, 20 something percent. And the, the solution at the time, Anthropic is like, hey, just try this new prompt. And it was like five words changed and suddenly it gets like 98% or something, something silly. Um, but uh, that aside, uh, cost is definitely a factor. Uh, you're built on input tokens for a lot of models. Um, some companies are actually not doing that. So that's kind of interesting. It might depend on your vendor too. Um, you have latency potentially uh, being a factor as well. Um, but I think a lot of the things that happen when you just say, let me just put this whole PDF in this context window is that you forget a lot of the pre-processing steps. So in a PDF, let's say you're trying to optimize for this one PDF, it's um, the most important PDF in the world. Uh, there can be different things you want to uh, take into consideration. Like, uh, is a table of contents in that PDF, right? How should your retrieval system reference that table of contents? Um, should it be self-aware which page it's on? Should it know um, images or other pieces of information, but not, that might not be immediately extracted by text? So the Put everything in a context window is great as an initial proof of concept, but there's these deeper questions that you have to ask. And from a technical perspective, it's something that we've run into. So I work at a company called Cold Voice Flow, and we work on a managed drag solution. And some com some customers are like, okay, well, what if my documents have images? How how should those be handled? If they're physical images, links. Uh, should documents again be self-aware? Um, so 
people are asking these questions, which are really important, but these are usually second or third layer questions with once somebody has built something. It's not a, uh, most people don't think of it at the beginning, but it's, it's really important because it talks about your whole pipeline for working with this document. So if I'm understanding you right, the model it can handle 100,000 tokens. And if you use that clever prompt, I think I know the prompt you're talking about. It's, and it was something like, um, and the most important sentence is X. And like, yeah. you, you, you kind of lean into the LLM's natural sort of continuation ability. If I'm understanding you right, it, it, it is able to handle 100,000 tokens. Then with some uh, jiggering, you can maybe get some results. But to get better results, you should be more narrow, more focused in terms of not just what you're putting into the LLM to do your final output, but also just what you're putting into the vector database to, to do the matching in the first place. Am I understanding you right there? Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's um, kind of as we've been going through this AI hype cycle, people are like, oh, just throw AI on it. Um, but I think sort of a year later after ChatGPT, we're getting back to the, the ML fundamentals of you need good data, right? People are um, going back to that. The, the one benefit is that LLMs are actually really amazing at picking up noisy data. Like we've run some experiments on noisy data. Like you, you scrape a website and there's just like random tags in there, like Google ads manager, like, um, and you can of course clean that up, but you ask like a question from like the header or something of that noise and it picks it out. So uh, these models are, are quite amazing, um, sort of as summarizers and extractors, but the easier you make the job, the better. Um, and there's definitely challenges in certain domains, like tabular data still, uh, multimodal, um, multilingual, um, low-resource low languages especially. Um, there's a lot of interesting things happening there, but those data pipelines are, are, are so, so important. And they make it easier to do other things like migrating LLMs, different embedding models. Like it's, it's a whole engine that uh, you have to set up. And obviously there's, there's phases to that. So, so you talk about, you know, in tabular data, you talk about images, um, documents have, have bullet lists. Um, we have headers, we have footers, we have table of contents, like you mentioned, what role does a good document parsing model or platform or technology play in this pipeline? And how important is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting because it's, it really depends on the use case, right? So there have been different ways, for example, to chunk and parse information. Um, sometimes it's fine just to do text parsing as an example, and then include links as part of that that text parsing, right? And assuming that the links have some kind of contextual information, like it's www.google.cat.png or whatever. Google doesn't have that, but you can imagine on your website, website slash cat.png. Like that's a self-describing picture as opposed to something like XW3, whatever, whatever, uh, with no uh, markdown or metadata to it. Um, so sometimes you can just get away of faking multimodal uh, search or retrieval based on good data organizations, uh, good data organization. But other times it gets quite challenging um, because first you have to figure out a model that works for your data, um, especially for multimodal data. Some some data just doesn't get sorted in the best way, especially if it's very domain specific. Um, then you might need to fine tune your own model. 
or maybe the model works, but suddenly in three months, it's uh, legacy, something we've been seeing in the open AI space, right? You, you have Llama that comes out, then there's like four other models, MPT, Falcon, all these things, and then they get blown out of the water by Llama 2. And now we're waiting for Llama 3 to be trained. So the space moves so quickly that 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 pipeline is so important and understanding like when does it make sense to switch from state of the art to new state of the art or maybe even balance other things uh, like complexity or migrations because it's all a technical decision. Are you going to spend every three months migrating embeddings and models and all that stuff or are you going to build features on top of it? Um, so going back to the question of multimodal and all of this, it's a uh, it goes back to the use case because there's models out there that are really cool. You've had the Facebook uh, paper that came out. I don't remember if it was last year or two years ago called Data to Vec. And that was just like a, a mind-blowing concept, right? That you have, I think it was six different modalities that you can just capture into, into a vector um, and so forth. And now this is becoming standard. Like you have vision models, uh, Lava coming out, GPT-4 vision, right? Gemini, all, all these things. So now... Even from a decoder side, from an LLM side, this is directly baked in without having to do any any fancy prompting. So very, very cool space, but you have to have clarity of what you want to build because it's easy to get lost in all the models. What what kind of model would we use for re-ranking? There are vector models. There are, you know, um, bi-encoder, cross-encoder models. What What... How how do we go ahead and and select the best re-ranking engine for us? Mm -hmm. I think the the first question is, do you need a re-ranker or do you just need a retrieval system? Um, I think for ninety percent of cases, if you're not building on on legacy, like I mentioned before, um, most retrieval systems from scratch are, are pretty good. Um, so you start off with that, you get the system working. Now you now you need to ask the question of what specific issues are, are you seeing? Is it with your tabular data? Is it with like serial IDs where model might not be uh, picking those out? Like a semantic search model doesn't do too well with like long uh, combinations of like ticket IDs or UUIDs, that kind of stuff. So you might need to introduce like a hybrid keyword search, right? Going back to sort of those standard models, TFIDF, um, BM25, um, sort of uh, baselines, right? And maybe combining those together. So then, then in that case, uh, you might have a re-rank model um, explicitly. Uh, you might have some kind of a fusion combination uh, model between your uh, semantic search and your, your keyword search. But I think there, there's four, four main ways I've seen. Uh, the first one is uh, another model. Uh, so cross-encoder, dual-encoder. Um, there's a couple of different ways to do that, but just use another model that's different, right? Uh, that model might uh, be more fine-tuned for false positives or false negatives, right? It might have a, a more narrow domain, right? There's different things you can benefit from having different models uh, in there. It might be slower, uh, so you might benefit from a smaller um, sort of number of documents to re-rank. So, so different things there. Um, you could also use something like a late interaction model, like the Colbert models, uh, one and two and various flavors have been getting more attention recently, which is great. Um, they use a different type of indexing, uh, using the, the attention outputs themselves rather than just uh, a single vector to do that. Um, but those are, if you need to continuously update your information that 
they're they're not as useful for that. Um, there's LLM re-rankers uh, as your your third option. Um, those are quite popular. Like GPT-4 is sometimes as the baseline. Like you pass in a prompt that's like here's three different uh, snippets. Like rank them in relevance to this question. Use these parameters. Um, and beyond that, you can sort of fine-tune a model as, as well to do that. Um, and then the fourth option is just use some magical API, right? So, uh, for example, CodeGear has an API for re-ranking um, that they have. Other vendors have, have something similar. So you can just use a black box and hope that it works and test it against your data set. Um, but again, you need to know why you're re-ranking and have those test data sets to say, okay, the most important information is, is being surfaced or not. So I want to because maybe clarify kind of what the process is that you're describing. So like you you have this like uh, database or search engine or whatever. Query comes in. You generate some maybe some keywords or something, some method that you're performing like a traditional database query. You get back saying a hundred documents. They, They might be relevant. They might not. We're not totally sure yet. So if like you take those hundred documents that are, it's kind of like a coarse range search, then you're running it through a second model. Any one of the, the models that you just proposed, different techniques to try to pick out which out of those hundred documents, which are say the five that I might actually then feed into my LLM with a prompt to get the final result. Is that sort of the process that you're describing here? Yeah, that that's kind of the, how do you bolt on semantic search or, or better re-ranking onto an existing system. Uh, or you can have just uh, semantic search at the beginning and a, a, a keyword search as well if you're building sort of a, a newer engine or maybe a lower volume engine sort of out of the box as we've seen with uh, vector databases. But yeah, um, it really depends. Like the problem that uh, a legacy retailer will have with like I don't know, millions, hundreds of millions of, of SKUs or orders or whatever the type of data might be is very different than uh, a new company searching a PDF with 100 pages, right? So uh, problem space is just, it's just so important. How, how important is query pre-processing when it comes to, to rank-based um, systems? Part of I I got hired at Seismic part of knowledge team where we had very long natural language queries and you know um, parsing those were was was fundamental to delivering customer value and I'm seeing that you know there's a chance that not only extracting you know keywords but also classifying them classifying the query doing all this like query pre-processing and I'm curious is where where or how does that fit into the pipeline yeah it, it it's a it's a great question and point so there's various techniques that that people use um so some popular techniques is generating uh, alternative questions almost like candidates that, that you can have so if somebody asks what is the weather um you can generate similar phrases so um like, why is it cold outside? Or what is the weather? And you might inject some other information, like in Toronto or, or in, a, in another place. Um, so you can generate some variety to try to sort of maybe avoid some edge cases where your model doesn't retrieve something similar. And then do queries on each of those phrases. Um, you could definitely break apart if the, if the search query, whether it's a document, 
a verbose um, person talking or, or something more structured like a SQL query uh, or something that you want to translate into SQL query, there's definitely ways to pre-process that and maybe have an NER model to extract key terms or key topics um, and then perform searches on all of them. So it's it's a very interesting thing, but latency might become a problem, right? If you're stringing together all these different systems and the user has an expectation of 200 um, milliseconds or 400 milliseconds of response time, if you're stringing it through six different LLMs and kind of like what we saw in early 2023 with like agents, right? With people are like, okay, let me string all these agents together to do this task. And then it takes 60 seconds and burns a million tokens. And you're like, well, uh, <laughs> why did we do that? So uh, it goes back to like the the requirements. Um, users don't really know what they, they want, but as, as a product decision, you can say, okay, we're going to trade off 10x uh, latency for a 2% accuracy loss. Um, or maybe it's bigger, maybe it's more important. You're, you're dealing in a medical space where it's just so important for every last percent of accuracy and people are, are willing to wait. Maybe it's almost like a, a batch job that you're running. Somebody says something, they go do another task, they come back, they just want to make sure that it's accurate or, or whatnot. So um, yeah, lots of cool techniques, but um, you, you need to know what you want. Um, I think that's kind of the, the core theme. We're kind of drowning in all these options with, with all the attention and money flowing into the space. So um, lots of cool techniques, but sometimes you launch it and it just doesn't help. Um, we had some, something similar to voice flow where we would re-rank or rewrite user questions based on context and memory. Uh, but we actually found that that, um, that reduced performance. Sometimes the, the questions would be rewritten in, in different ways. Uh, to take into account context, um, a lot of times it didn't give predictability for users. So for example, if you ask the same question as your second question or as your first question, you get wildly different results. Um, it slowed things down unpredictably sometimes. So sometimes you just need to know your use case launch and, and readapt. And we still allow users to use memory, for example, but we don't do things on their behalf, like rewriting the question, things like... Um, why is this thing green while the previous question might have been like about an apple or something right so um rewriting and say why is this apple green um might work better in some cases but in other cases might lead to, to strange results or just harder to debug which people find incredibly frustrating and completely understandable so do you think I... that people are like over complicating it like they're 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 it... Like you were saying, they're they're stringing together so many different systems. Each of them has like an eighty percent reliability, and you compound the eighty percent reliability systems in series. Suddenly, the whole end-to-end -end system has, you know, uh, only a five percent reliability. Like it'll it'll never actually succeed end-to-end. -end. Is it? Do we need to simplify? Is that like a a good message? Uh, I think so. Um... I think right now there are so many low-hanging fruit uh, in this kind of information retrieval space. Like, I don't think anybody right now is excited to talk to a chatbot or get on the phone to try to call into a call center, right? That's that's not the feeling we have. The industry isn't at the point where we're at like 60% accuracy, right? Or 70 or whatever arbitrary metric of people being happy, right? We're, we're still not there. Um, if we were there, then... I definitely get that. Let's overcomplicate it and over-engineer this. Um, 
So what we're seeing with, with many customers, I actually posted about this earlier today, but it's really important for people to have incremental goals when building these systems out and tying it back to, to the business. So for example, we were working with a customer and they're like, we want to do AI for everything. And we're like, great, um, let's put that into milestones because that that's a very vague goal, right? It's, it's like a top level executive board level goal. Let's make that more achievable and let's translate that to, to how we build. So they started building on the platform. They start off with like 4% automation, 11%, and it just slowly compounds as they're figuring out what's important. Um, they're adding different uh, questions that they're automating, different workflows. Now they're up to 59%, and then we're uh, continuing to work with them to keep, uh, make sure that keeps going up, right? So I think those goals are really important. Um, you can probably automate least 60% of your questions, just like with a very simple system, if you look at it from like a Q&A perspective. And the other thing is just like UX is so important. Uh, there's another customer we are working with and they tried to put a chatbot on their website and nobody used it because there, there's a lot of <laughs> bad memories that trying to use a chatbot. So instead they just augmented like a search bar, right? So they put search into search, which it's kind of funny that that's that's not intuitive for a lot of these systems and users used it and, and they loved it right so uh the ux is just so important there and it, it it's kind of interesting right a lot of the big companies that are offering these solutions they don't actually have like chatbots or, or or like dynamic search on on their websites right um so this is kind of interesting where even companies who are selling this software don't have that confidence that they can use it themselves, which is also a, an, an interesting point is that they're selling a, a fairly complex system, but it might be too complex to implement for, for their own use cases. So uh, it's still a very emergent field. Um, I think you build a lot of trust by doing 50% first with 10% of the effort and then 80-20 rule and then uh, onwards, so. You, you mentioned a bit earlier, um you know, potentially fine tuning your own models to do some of this stuff. And we know that, you know, sending text to an LM is very straightforward. It's very fast. At what point do you say, Hey, you know what, this is something we need to fine tuner or, or we, we decide to bring in Harris a little bit more. Is it a purely cost decision or are there other things at play there? Um, I, th I think it's cost. I think using LLMs is an excellent way to prototype. So somebody has an idea, the fact that you can just call an API and just apply with, call it 70% accuracy or whatnot on basically most tasks. That's pretty amazing, right? You don't need to spin up an ML team. You just have like, I, I was uh, speaking at, at an event and uh, the event was a hackathon. And the fact that anybody at that hackathon who has an ML idea can build it, like, that's amazing, right? Like, that that's that's so interesting um, that this is what, what's available to people building now. And what else is cool is that you're outclassing a lot of the custom models that you built before, right? So I was giving the example that, look, um, we spent 18 months building this custom model and then GPT-4 comes around and for a task, like, it performs basically at the same level. So rather than spinning up an ML team to build the system, you could just call GPT-4. Now, the other slide I showed was that GPT-4 was like 1,200 times more expensive to run than 
this custom system because they are large language models. Uh, so cost is definitely a factor, but I'd say prototyping, understanding the use case, once you have that figured out, you can start fine tuning, maybe picking other models. Um, and then after that, once you have those sort of those muscles, those uh, that technique developed, of this is the data I need, this is what I need to be successful. There, there's a lot, a lot of other techniques. You could do compiled programs with prompt tuning, um, using various opinionated compiler uh, programs like DPSY, things like that. Um, you can fine tune an existing open source model. Um, so a lot, lot of capabilities there. Um, but again, prototype, figure out what needs to happen, and then you can you can ask the question: Should I fine tune afterwards? So it's you're suggesting like get started with just prompts, only bring in the fine tuning if you actually need it to get the result that you're aiming for. Yep, exactly. And it was interesting initially when GPT 3.5 fine tuning launched. It was basically the same price as GPT 4. So it was like, well, is there actually a benefit here for the specific use case? And that sometimes happens with even smaller models, right? When you put all the engineering hours and everything else into account, and you're like, okay, well, I just spend all this time fine-tuning this model. Is it even better than using a big model? Um, there's obviously other factors in play, like uh, data sovereignty, whether from like a, a legal perspective or just like owning the data, not sharing it with third parties as a competitive advantage. There's there's all these other uh, factors into play, hosting on-prem versus in the cloud, still a lot of companies working on-prem. Um, so a lot of the other factors, but yeah, I think there there was a lot of interest in building your own LLM sort of early uh, 2023, right? Everybody's doing these things and then fine-tuning variations, but those variations get outdated very quickly. So unless you have the infrastructure to say, yeah, just swap the model uh, name and we'll fine-tune it because we have all the infrastructure already, it's, uh, it's a big investment to make otherwise. You talk about the importance of UI in these applications. Um, and I guess if we touch more on the product side of things, it's, it's, it's easy to say, hey, let's build out a RAG system, right? Um, and I guess it's getting easier to even build these things out. But I guess the, the, the challenging part over here is making those product decisions. Where do we implement them? What does it retrieve? How do we answer the question? How is that answer you know, presented to the user? All these decisions that, or, or or questions that we may not have initially, what kind of questions? Like, like, what are the most important questions over here to ask ourselves before implementing some sort of like rag-based computer system? Yeah, um, it it's interesting. Every business has its own list of challenges and problems, right? Um, something in the customer support space that's interesting is that technology didn't really want to deal with that uh, sort of in, in the past, right? You'd typically outsource it through a vendor. It might be just like a cost center to do support, uh, have in-house support, out outsource support. And now suddenly with like large language models, people are thinking about automation. And this is now one of the, the coolest projects to work on, right? Is like support automation or any other automation support flow. So you almost have the shift of who's working on these projects back from like business teams, operations teams to developer teams. Um, and I bring this up as, as something important because we've seen a lot of people who want to build stuff, right? And budget goes to development or like data science teams, right? 
um, oh, AI, this is your domain, you can work on it. And to shift away from people who've been dealing with, with these challenges for, for many, many years. And many companies navigate this really well. They're like, okay, well, we're now a service provider to this customer support team or team that needs automation, whatever it might be, lead gen, a couple other use cases we've seen as well, search, et cetera. But others just say, okay, we, we quote unquote own AI now. So now we're just gonna build whatever. Um, so again, working with those uh, business partners and such, understanding like, what the requirements are, uh, people who've been dealing with, with these questions, because I think as, as developers, sometimes data scientists, uh, ML engineers, whatever you want to call domain, we, we just get excited to play with cool tech. Um, so I think talk to the business partners, the people who, who you're building for, talk to users. Um, I think that's so incredibly important uh, to, to understand, like, how do users work with your system? Um, so we, we, for example, have a number of channels working with users. Some are more traditional, like uh, email support, check-ins with large customers. Other times it's just people on Discord tagging us and being like, hey, this doesn't work uh, kind of thing. And this is what we're trying to build. So even building out a strong feedback process is very valuable. And a lot of companies don't don't have that. Um, we're certainly still figuring it out. It's it's not like uh, it's it's a solved problem, but yeah, that... For everybody, it's it's going to be different. Um, the examples I mentioned before, right? Should it be a search bar or a chatbot? Super important. Should it be within a document? Um, things are surfaced rather than again in a Slack message, right? Every company has a has a different culture framework how, how this works, and um, it's unfortunate that this AI wave has had like solutions looking for problems or jamming places where where they shouldn't be. Um, kind of like is chat the base the best interface for many things? The answer is no. Um, like I would never want to look at a financial analysis document or a spreadsheet through a chatbot. Like that that sounds like a horrible experience of asking what was our revenue in twenty twenty three. It's like no, I don't want to do that. Just show me show me the spreadsheet with the numbers, right? Um, likewise with things like SKUs or e even other other pieces of information, right? So, um really depends. I uh, don't have a clear answer because it's it's so dependent on on the industry, the use case, and like even people's preferences, right? The, the, those exist as well. So, Continuing on this point, um, one challenge that I often have is when those product decisions bump up against the limitations of the technology, where it's like, I know what the product person wants and they want the moon. You know, yeah. they always want the moon. And it's, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to describe to them. I'm like, okay, th this over here is possible, but like that little bead is maybe not possible. Like, and, and it's changing. You know, I recently had a client project where the client comes to me and is just like, hey, what about this technique? And I'm like, oh my gosh, that actually would save a lot of money and time and effort. Like, <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I'm supposed to be coming to you with the techniques, but uh, you know, how, how do you deal with the, the inherent limitations of the technology when you're providing that guidance to the business teams. Yeah, this is where I think proof of concepts are, are really important, but we've definitely got caught in this sort of cycle, right? Where we try to give a timeline, right? It's like, will this work? We're like, well, let's try to explore. We think it'll take this long. Sometimes it takes half the time. Sometimes it takes five acts of time, right? Because you're, you're doing exploratory work. It's not just like, right, write a call to a database, right? Very different type of work. Um, 
So that's, we had a couple of projects where we run into this. It's like, oh, let's, let's automate this thing. And it's like, okay, it works. The fidelity is like 70, 80%, but it's not ready as a product, right? Um, and that's tough. Um, typically this, these kind of projects would live in uh, R and D departments of some sort, and then they might graduate into more of a, like a product, um, sort of sense, right? A product team. But now you have, because of this prototyping power, people get these ideas and they're okay, let's, let's ship it. Let's do it. I tried three examples. It works. Um, and another time it's, it's just explaining to users what the possibilities are. We've, we've had to work with customers where we say, okay, here's an AI functionality. You should look at it on aggregate. And then they'll say, okay, but this one use case doesn't work. Or like, yes, we confirm it doesn't work. We can try to change prompts or find them all in a different direction, but it's like playing whack-a-mole. Other issues will pop up. So it's, it's kind of like the, on aggregate, what is your goal of satisfaction or accuracy or whatever it might be? Cause it's like, these things aren't magical, right? They might work very well, but there's going to be issues. And sometimes they're not explainable, right? You have some bias in the model where it's the first thing always responds or, uh, it's preferred, right? We've, we've seen all the studies of like, which number is preferred by an LLM? Well, it's like one or seven or <laughs> other things like that. And sometimes just that, that combination provides issues, um, You've also seen like weird things like certain phrases might cause a completion token to be generated. And we're just like, we have no idea why this happens. Right. Uh, I'm sure the large language model providers also are in a similar boat, right? You just have weird things that happen. Can't, can't, can't predict that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think going back to that, it's, it's not just the product side, it's the customer side because customers just have sky high expectations now, uh, especially when you say we're going to be using AI. Um, so ties together, uh, with the, the sort of social research that needs to be done on how do people actually benefit from these kind of features. I know there's another report that came out yesterday from Microsoft about Copilot about group productivity, but people do less accurate work. Right. And that's refreshing to hear, uh, especially since a lot of companies and sort of people in the space will say, yes, it's, it's unequivocally good, right. For productivity or information generation or answering. Um, so it's important to understand the trade-offs. And I think after a year of hype, we're slowly starting to, um, sort of permeate some of those ideas of trade-offs and, uh, and challenges working with, with these tools. So. You, you mentioned you know, this feedback mechanism or this feedback loop being an important part of, you know, the overall rag or, or any, possibly any kind of AI feature. And I'm curious to learn where we set the balance between, you know, ensuring that the product delivers sufficient value and giving the end user the option to upvote or downvote or, you know, provide a number of stars. Where, where does that balance lie? Do we, do we allow users to rate everything and, and basically put the, the onus on them? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it goes back sort of to the, the UX, UI, um, even social psychology, right? Question, right? It's like people will often do whatever it takes to reach a live human, right? We've seen that with, with many chatbots and stuff, just like mash buttons, give thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever it might take, right? So you have some pre-learned behaviors. 
Um, sometimes people just click something random. Um, sometimes a lot of sort of UX patterns are kind of like dark patterns or anti-patterns where you like swap a one and a 10 on like the feedback form. Like we've probably seen that before as well. Um, so it, it it's a very interesting topic. Um, it, I think it really depends on what kind of interaction it is. If a customer has an incentive and feels like they have an incentive to to provide good feedback, that that's always great, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the reason that they're interacting with you is an adversarial one, like they're mad because they got overcharged or something else happened. So in that case, how much can you trust the data? Um, I don't know. I, I haven't read any research myself. There might be some on and in that case, if a user is happy or sad, how accurate are their labels, for example? Um, there's also like cultural context, uh, domain knowledge, right? You could have people rank something, right? But they might not either know at the time if it's a fix, right? So for example, you talk with a chatbot, they're like, here's three different ways that this might fix your computer, right? Three different techniques are like, they're like restarted, do, do two, do three. And they used to be like, great, this actually gave me a useful response, like something that's actionable and I can try out. But it might not be the right response, right? But the user doesn't know yet. Um, so there, there's all these, these different moments where it's hard to know if you can trust uh, these things. It's the same thing with like customer satisfaction score, uh, NPS, right? All, the, all those things are beneficial in a way, but have trade-offs. Um, and user-labeled data, like people make mistakes. Uh, all the time. So I think it's really important to set up that system, but it just takes so much more effort to go from, uh, it's kind of like the, the whole question of human feedback, direct reference, even like in the LLM space, taking it back there. Um, if you have a 90% clean data set, like that might be great, but we've seen other research papers that say like, uh, you only need like a thousand examples, like in the Facebook Lima paper to say this with a diverse set of examples, hand labeled, like completely excellent, might outclass like a million preference examples that are 90% accurate or not fully accurate. So um, I think feedback is really important. I think it's really hard to interpret it. I think what one one more thought on that is there's a lot of metrics that we use in the, the chatbot or automation space. Like for example, uh, deflection rate or containment rate or uh, completion rates, right? So is uh, interaction complete when somebody closes the chatbot, says thank you, says goodbye, says yes, that solved my issue, even though it might have not, right? Um, so all these metrics are, some of them are really hard to measure unless you go through and manually label it as somebody who's familiar with the product. So a lot of mysteries there. I think we should just treat it as any kind of um, social science almost like, you need to use statistics, you need to think about what the incentives are and how do you align user labeling incentives with with the product i i was interested to um kind of building on what you're saying here um comparing the metrics where we just ask a user for feedback was this good was this bad versus just measuring empirically what they actually did like coming back to uh, an example of like um dali where it generates an image I will generate 20 different images. Oh, I don't like that. Okay, I'll try this. Don't like, tweak that, tweak that. And then the final one, the one I like is the one I download. Yep. So I don't need to tell a thumbs up or thumbs down, but 
the images that I downloaded versus the ones I didn't download is like an empirical behavior that you can measure. Is that yeah. perhaps a better way of looking on how to get the feedback from the users? Look at their behavior rather than what they say? For sure. Um, I think some systems are naturally built to do that. Like that's a that's a great example. I mean, social media is the other example, right? Um, am I seeing relevant content, right? You, you can measure that in different ways. Some are less accurate than others. For example, do I go back to the platform to do stuff, right? That indicates some kind of preference. Um, is it uh, the right preference because I'm seeing clickbait or is it because I'm actually enjoying the content and find it relevant? Um, to your example, am I downloading the image because I think it's awesome or because I'm going to send it to my friends and say, hey, look, Technology isn't there yet. It generated this this funny image, right? <laughs> so there's there's always these these edge cases. Um, I think your example probably that's like a ninety five percent accurate signal, maybe, um, or that. But other signals are are harder. Um, even the question of like re-identifying users, like if you have an anonymous user, um, go and ask a question, right? Do you really want to track that user? Like it, it goes into the whole like privacy kind of kind of question and and data collection. Um, it's a little bit easier if they send it to you from like an email, right? It's like, how often are you sending you emails? Are they positive? Like whenever they email you, are they happy? If they swear at you, right? All, the, all, all these different things. So definitely building it into the system and looking at actions is, is important. Dennis, this was a real pleasure to have you on the show um, and really learn more about Ray and, and different concepts and, and questions that we should ask. Um, before implementing that and, and even touching into, you know, re-ranking. So thank you. And I guess before we, we leave the call, how do people reach out to you? How, how, how can people find you? Yeah, I think the easiest way is probably uh, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, Dennis, I go up there. Um, have my email, Dennis at voiceflow.com as well, if you have something more, more specific. But I'm pretty active at checking on LinkedIn, so that's probably the easiest way. Beautiful. And here you also have a course as well that people can take, right? Yes, I actually do have four courses, soon to be seven, uh, around different AI topics. Um, anything from introduction to some of the business use cases as well, and some more hands-on coding ones too. So uh, a lot of interesting uh, material there. Awesome. So, so, Dennis, how, how do we get access to those courses? Uh from LinkedIn, you can subscribe there. There's also other options through universities, libraries, and such, or you can buy them a la carte. Beauty. Amazing. Take care. All right, thank you. Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe and stay updated on our latest content. We appreciate your support.